Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been over a year in the making. My guest today is Jamel Hill, who uh, now writes for The Undefeated and appears on ESPN, but before this, host of SportsCenter, host of His and Hers on ESPN, a legend in the business. And uh, Jamel, thanks so much for coming and doing uh, this. You're right. This has been a long time in the making, but I'm happy we finally made it happen. You call me a legend? That's... Well, it's kind of crazy. <laughs> but you are. Listen, when someone's been doing something for a long time at the top of the field and the, all right, the word I really think is more appropriate if you want the truth is hero. Oh. Okay. Uh no, I wrote it down to say because look, you're in a position where you, you could have just coasted. You could have coasted and got more money and more fame and more power only. Most people in your position not only would have done that but continued to do that and you stood up and were willing to more than one time say, like, no, I actually have no choice but to speak out. And I'm, the label for that is heroic, you know, uh, because you sacrificed knowingly the second time uh, the kind of things that most of us live for and would protect with all our might. Yeah, the weird thing about it is probably the the first go round, the initial treats, uh, tweets about Trump, uh, I didn't actually consider that to be breaking news. <laughs> okay, the, the, that he was surrounding himself with racists. Uh, yeah, I didn't. I thought we sort of all decided after Charlottesville that, that you know that we were at least kind of on a particular page. And I was in a back and forth with a Twitter user. Like it wasn't a thing where. Uh, I was adding the president and saying, here, this is what I think about you. So I was just sort of in mid-conversation, and those tweets ballooned, and, you know, the snowball started, and that was that. But in that moment, I wasn't thinking, like, I need to be the hero. I need to be, you know, Bruce Willis saving Nakatomi uh, Towers or anything. By I the like way, that. Die you Hard is to me not and you throw, start throwing the cult pop culture yes, references. I had to throw it in there. That pepper my whole show yes. and world. but. But then, then you wrote about uh, a letter where where you sort of uh, talked about being in, in uh, John Skipper's office, and you sort of took yourself on and apologized. Mm-hmm. But then you spoke out again. And <laughs> when I read the Skipper letter, I had a hard time understanding why you felt bad. Well, understand, I've been at ESPN now for twelve years. Uh, and, and Skipper was the former head of ESPN. Yes, about. and he had a lot to do with some of the great and amazing things I was able to do there. He showed a lot of confidence in in me and also uh, my former co-host Michael Smith. And uh, we had a very good relationship. And while I know that he was not, say, personally disappointed in me, the position that it put him in because. You know, ESPN has unfortunately been the target of some very unfair and false narratives. One, that we're a political company, and we're not. That's not the function of ESPN. Uh, that's not to say we don't cover sports and politics. That is, But a lot of times what people read to be politics aren't really politics. It's matters of being right and wrong, right? And so uh, I thought ESPN was already swept up in a very bad and untrue narrative. And so I contributed to that narrative whether people agreed with me or not. Are you talking about the the Roger Goodell, Bill Simmons narrative that ESPN was caught up in? No, I'm talking about in general that people people started backtracking from when we gave Caitlyn Jenner the Arthur Ashe Award. And obviously there's been a lot of... Com- oh, you mean the idea that ESPN was liberal, you're saying? Yes, but some people say political. They like to interchange those words. They say ESPN's too liberal. 
ESPN's too political. It depends on who you're talking to. Because sometimes when people say too liberal, they don't mind that we're discussing politics. They just want us to discuss more conservative politics. Right. If they think we're political in general. Or if they say we're too political, they just don't want anything that has nothing to do with results, games, live events, whatever. So uh, for that class of ESPN viewer, we were violating their sensibilities by having the nerve to cover one of the biggest sports uh, stories of the last decade in Colin Kaepernick, right? And so, um, again, really uh, successful places and, and successful ventures make for really big targets. That's just the way that it works. But it was one of those things where I think people were, were believing the perception more than the actual reality. We weren't on TV talking about immigration and 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 dreamers and uh, healthcare. Like that was never ESPN's reality. Talking about the fact that players consider certain social justice issues important to them is a part of what we do. ESPN right? has always contextualized sports, ha- hasn't? Haven't yeah, they? sports have always. I mean, outside the lines was like one of the first original shows, and it was a show all about the cultural factors that go into why we care about why we care about sport and the ways in which sport is greater than just these contests. You are absolutely right, but that's not the way that it had been reading lately. Is that for people who maybe felt like they either disagreed with what we were showing or just in general felt like we were not paying attention to their particular voice, that narrative started to to really drum up and overtake probably what has been one of the best success stories in business ever. Of course. Right? Yeah, but, I mean, James Miller's book about the yeah, way in which they started with the satellite the driving around. It's amazing. The sa- <laughs> you know, getting satellites was insane. Um but one of the things I've been thinking about is that in order to have gotten, I want to take go through your biography in a second, but you know, as a black woman rising up in this industry, I'm sure you had to shut down facets of your personality or be careful about it, how you were perceived a lot of the time on the way up. Uh, I'm just probably too stupid to do that. <laughs> and, no, you think you, so- never, you never felt like you had no. to not speak in the way that you wanted to speak or speak out in the way you wanted to? No, I mean, I managed the workplace, I think, the way that most people do, but I was never going to suppress certainly not my integrity and not any part of who I was to make somebody else comfortable. That, that has never you mean been... You just made that choice. Mm, I mean, I, I feel like I've been that way since birth. Like, that is not something that arrived with making X amount of money or being at ESPN. I've always kind of been that way. Uh like everybody, you pick and choose your battles, but when I pick a battle, it's with the full intent of winning the war. Okay. Well, well so then, but then, where were you in the? So you you say the thing about Trump, you get some support, you get some criticism, you own it a little bit, and then you say, "Let's boycott the advertisers," <laughs> and that had to be very consciously decided to make that statement because you. You had to know what that meant. Or I'm asking you, did you know what that meant? Believe it or not, actually, at the time, I didn't. I didn't. At the time, I didn't. I know Tell this, the story. Tell what happened. I know this scene sounds horribly naive for somebody who's in, in media and at ESPN. My overall point was that I saw as soon as Jerry Jones said with the Cowboys that if any player kneels, that they were going to face some consequence, be it he might cut him be it playing time, 
And suddenly there was this uprising of fans and people saying, how dare you? And a lot of them were African-Americans, African-American fans who were basically saying, how dare y'all let this white man talk to y'all like this, right? And it put an unnecessary target on the players' back because they have communities to answer to themselves. And suddenly you're challenging their manhood openly. They have a community they represent. The community is expecting something from them. And I think they are put in an unfair and awkward position for many of them who have sacrificed a lot to get to where they are. And suddenly they are being tasked with leading a revolution. Look, there's a reason why there was only one Martin, one Malcolm, one Medgar Evers. It's because that role and responsibility is not for everybody. And my my thing for the fans was, if you are so upset about what Jerry Jones has said, if you are so upset about how the NFL has overall reacted to this anthem policy, you control it with your remote. It's really on you. The players that have kneeled, Colin Kaepernick has sacrificed. Now Eric Reed is out of a job as well. They have done their part. If you believe in what they are taking a knee for, at some point you got to do your part when it comes to the NFL. Because part of the reason why they're able to uh, to pass these thoughtless national anthem policies is because they have the fan support behind them. And so sure. it was more or less me telling the fans that if you want something to change and you don't want the players to be treated this way, you actually have the power to change it. But, yeah, but it was also you doing that. Yes. It was you making a personal decision, wasn't it? It was, uh, and given I was coming off the heels of obviously something else that was extremely controversial, my my wiggle room wasn't there, right? (laughs) And people were going to automatically attach anything I said as a, as a direct order. And, um, you know, the truth was as with my platform being, uh, what it was and my profile being raised significantly over everything that was happening, it sort of was the perfect storm for what happened. Do you regret it? No. Um, I don't because I'm not a person that generally believes in regrets because I believe everything uh, happens for a reason And you may not be able to see that reason in that moment, but it may become clearer later on. And so I think uh, while I don't love the position, as I mentioned, I have a a great affection for John Skipper and many other people at ESPN. I don't love what they had to deal with as as a result of me. Even now, I'm getting to know our new president, Jimmy Pataro, and I feel terrible that every time he makes an appearance somewhere, he's asked about me and asked about ESPN and politics, right? But so wait, why do you feel I, I, I got to ask you, mm. why do you feel bad about that? Shouldn't shouldn't he as a as a supporter of football, as a, one of the main sort of uh, patrons in the old sense of a patronage, they're paying so much money to the NFL. Why shouldn't all of us who engage with the NFL have to grapple with this question in a real way? Like, why do you regret like I get you. So you don't regret it personally. But really because of, like, your general life philosophy. But even specifically, why would you – Why don't they deserve to answer those questions? It, but there are also collateral damage in my narrative. You know what I'm saying? It's like when, when as soon as I make the decision to tweet, sure, that it doesn't just affect me. You know, I mean, at the time, we were trying to get uh, the 6 p.m. sports center off the ground. And because of that attention and that heat, that made that a little more difficult – to continue to do and you know when I got suspended that meant that that was two weeks that my co-host had to host that show and people had to look at him and say 
why are you here or why aren't you here? You know what I mean? Yeah, he was put. Yes, he that was, was put a in a bad spot. Yeah, decision. And he supported me a hundred percent. So it wasn't about their support of me. It was mostly about if I make a decision, I can live with that decision because I made it for me. It's that you then force everybody else to live with it too. Yes, but if the issue is still as unresolved as it is, I mean, we're talking about it now. You're you you haven't silenced yourself, right? Nope. <laughs> and you still feel like you called Colin Kaepernick a hero uh, because he is sacrificing himself in that same tradition. Civil disobedience, and this is the thing sometimes younger people don't understand, it always comes with a price. It always comes with collateral damage. That's why it's brave to do acts of civil disobedience. You've made the choice that you have to do it. Right? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I look at it as... Uh, if not me, then who? Um, but I, I don't look at it purely, you know, selfishly. I know for a lot of people who may be listening, it may seem crazy uh, that I have some empathy for what everybody else had to go through as a result of of my actions. But I guess it's just how I'm, I'm built. And maybe I shouldn't care about ESPN because they got billions of dollars. And I know people expect that to be the answer. But when you've been somewhere 12 years, it's, no, the relationship is different. No, you're trying to say you're a good citizen all around. So you're a good citizen in the, in the, in the company in which you work also. And you're able to sep- like look at the whole thing three, 360 degrees, which is part of what makes you such a good journalist, too, is you have empathy. Yeah. You're able to have distance and be cold if you have to with a, like a cold eye. But you're, you have empathy for what everyone's going through. I think that's um, not just part of maybe what helps me be a a good journalist, but uh, I think it's also why I'm uniquely qualified to speak about some of the things that I speak about that are about sports and also not about sports. Is that, and it's kind of something that we're running low on in this country, which is empathy, (laughs) right? You got to be able to put yourself in the other person's, you know, shoes and and understand why they're doing things. And, And look, let me just say this. When I got suspended, I told ESPN, I wasn't resentful. I didn't hate them. Um, I understood their position because I was able to do that, saying, okay, if I were them and had to deal with me and I'm trying to build a sports brand, maintain that sports brand, maintain the power and that ESPN has attained in the sports media business, I'd probably do the same thing. But just because I can understand why they did it doesn't mean I would take it back and do it differently. Right. It's like they got to be able to 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 do what's right for them. And I got to be able to do what's right for me. Ninety nine percent of the time I've been at ESPN, those have been on the same page. It just that the interests were 100 percent aligned, aligned. But it's just that in these two cases, they weren't right. And and you weren't disappointed that they didn't just take your stance because you you understand that they can't. I never expected them to. That would have been (laughs) that would have been preposterous. And. It's not unlike how things have been in media, uh, not just in the current time, but just how it's been throughout my career. I mean, if you're a journalist, there's certain things you sign up for that you know come with the job. When I worked in print newspapers, we couldn't have political signs in our yards, on our cars, whether we covered politics or not. The whole creed unofficially that you take when you're unaffiliated and dispassionate exactly that's what you sign up for sure and so even though it may seem odd to people the thing we advocate for the most and that 
uh, that makes our activism is our journalism and it's truth. That's our activism, right? It's not necessarily me standing outside the White House with a picket sign or, you know, me choosing to campaign for candidate X is I'm going to tell the truth whether you want to hear this no, or the not. The times demand, I mean, listen, the, but the times then demand mm-hmm. these times, it seems to me, like I, I'm, um, I don't have a, as big a platform as you do, but I'm on social media and I will, I, and I know that, you know, I'm go- I could cost myself audience. I could cost Showtime some audience, but I, you, I don't feel like in these times you cannot speak out you know, I see the NFL thing exactly as you do. I think Steve Tisch did a great thing yesterday saying that he won't punish the Giants players and going up against, uh, you know, going up against the president, which is all why I say I think it was heroic of you. And, and, and because I know how hard you worked and I know what a long path it was to get there and how long you worked and you had the brass ring of Sports Center, and to be willing to put that stuff on the line even if you say you didn't really know the extent of what you were doing. I didn't. This is true. I didn't. I did, but All right. Then it how was, much Don Julio was in the <laughs> equation? But I, I'll say this, though. I mean, once, only in the sense that I didn't realize or expect those tweets or to balloon as much as they did. Only in that sense. But once it happened, it's, it, it wasn't anything I lost sleep over. Did you get calls from NFL players? Don't I'm not going to ask you to say who. Did I you did. get calls from NFL players? NFL players, you? NBA players, um, even even now when I run into them in, in social spaces. You get hugs and thanks. I get hugs and thanks and all these I other mean, that things. Must, I mean, that must feel really good. It feels weird. Uh, and, you mean instead of you being the person judging them and everything. Yeah, now, exactly. You, you're right, because you didn't want to be in the family. No. Uh, and but you are now, in a way. Yeah, and, and look, I appreciate I that. love that you said it feels weird to you. It does. It feels bizarre because, uh, you know, ever since I got in this business and as I matured in this business, the number one rule they always told you is that you're not the story, right? And so uh, even now when I go to cover things, it feels odd that I'm there to cover somebody else or to talk to somebody else and people want to take pictures with me or uh, athlete or celebrity X wants to meet me because... Different now than even when you were just famous for being on Totally different. Totally different now because totally you let people into who you really are. Yeah, because now the toothpaste has been let out of the tube no, and they, they know uh, a little bit about my, my mindset and, and my mentality. And so it's, oh, it's wow. changed that dynamic. And that you definitely couldn't have anticipated. No, I did not. Well, that's, so that's like a great unintended consequence, isn't it? That it, you're, it is, uh, even though there is some level with it that you do have to keep a, a little bit of pro, uh, professional distance. But because you still have to criticize someone if they play that. <laughs> exactly. Like I appreciate that you think that what I did was great or, to use your word, heroic, but you know you still missed twenty shots last night. <laughs> like it's all good. I, you know? Right, I have to. I, I have, have to, to kind say of it. still do that. Hiring is challenging, but there's one place you can go where hiring is simple, fast, and smart. A place where growing businesses connect to qualified candidates. That place is ZipRecruiter.com/moment. Look, ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invite them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. 
ZipRecruiter is so effective that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. With results like that, it's no wonder ZipRecruiter is the highest rating hiring site in America. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash moment. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash M-O-M-E-N-T, ZipRecruiter.com slash moment. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. So uh, when let me, this is one of my favorite questions to ask people who are as successful as, as you are when how would you have defined success when you were starting out like when you were where'd you go to college I know you grew up I went, in I went to Michigan State right mm-hmm. so when you were like leaving Michigan State and if I would have run into you and said like what would a successful life be how would you have defined it then? I would have described it very specifically I would have said um, I would be a long-form journalist making $50,000 a year that would be a huge win I was like if I make 50 balling that's it that would have just been it you know as it was i thought what, what, well, my, my first job out of college i thought i was ahead of the game because i remember time listed the top 100 professions and they did it by income uh journalist was third from the bottom i remember wow. yeah i remember uh i believe it was a log roller that was behind <laughs> us i don't remember what was dead last but we were third from the bottom someone tweeted us what was last in that I want to know what <laughs> yeah, it was. Yeah, I, w- I would love to know. This would have been 1997. If someone has that and they find it, tell us. So the average salary for a journalist was $19,000 a year, uh, which is about what my tuition cost at that point. And so I was hustling backwards the moment I started school. So when my first job offer, I got 22000 I was like, I made it. I beat the average. <laughs> right. Where, where, where in Detroit did you grow up? Uh, I grew up, as I like to say, um, line borrowed from Jay-Z in the real hood, not the rap hood. Uh, so I grew up on the west side of Detroit. I've lived in a, a couple of different places, but I was always on the west side. And now, what I was, was the economic profile? Oh, I'm poor. Right. <laughs> I did not have a lot of money. Uh, went to Mufford High School, which I guess for your business, that's where Jerry Bruckenheimer went. Right. Yeah, so. And uh, Axel Foley. Yeah, that's why we got right? Axel Foley too. That's Axel why Foley. Eddie Murphy wore the t-shirt because Jerry Bruckheim- Bruckenheimer. Jeremy Bruckheimer made, made where I didn't know Beverly that. Hills Cop. But and that's where Axel that's Foley went, Axel, for sure. Yeah, <laughs> that's why we all them. wanted a Mumford t-shirt. So you went there. Yeah, I went there. And were most of the people around you, inter- like how did you start getting interested in the written word and in reading and, and all that stuff? That got started really early. So my mother- Were your parents big readers or? Um, my, my dad definitely was a, a big reader. My parents were never married. My mother, though, uh, to earn extra money, because uh, we were on welfare, a you know, pretty big chunk of my childhood, and she cleaned houses. And so one of the, she did it on the side, like under the table type of stuff, and one of the gentlemen she cleaned uh, his house, he was an older guy, and uh, he got subscriptions to both local newspapers, the free press and the news, and uh, gather around the campfire kitties because during those times we had to read the newspaper to follow our sports teams. And I was a big Tigers fan. Baseball was actually my first love. And so when she would clean his house, I would read his newspapers. And you would go with her? Yeah, because she couldn't afford child. She couldn't afford a babysitter. Right, no, of course. And so, you, were too li- you mean you were... Four years old? Five, uh, no, six. I was older than that. I was probably maybe seven, eight years and old. And she didn't want to leave you at home alone. So Correct. She took so you. she took me with her oftentimes. I would read the paper, and he would also be watching Tigers games. And I think he could tell I was kind of interested in sports. So we started to watch those Tiger games together. She cleaned his house for a long time, so they developed a friendship. 
and read his newspapers watching Tigers games. And so that reading newspapers is what got me interested in the written word. That's amazing. Yeah. And so did you think to yourself as a kid, like, I want to do something? Did you go to school for this? Were you, were you recognized in high school as a good writer? Like, how was, did you start doing I, that? I'm, a, I'm extremely blessed because a lot of people, it takes some time before they figure out what they want to do. I knew in middle school I wanted to be a sports writer. I was a vor- voracious reader. I love sports. What else did you read other than newspapers? Oh, I mean, you know, of course I read Judy Bloom. Because <laughs> who too. did? Because who didn't, right? Um, you know, I just uh, when Wrinkle in Time came out, I got my heart immediately melted. That was one of my favorite books. Right. Uh, growing up as a kid, you know, Catching the Rye, Beowulf, all the regular right. stuff. But I love uh, reading, and I excelled in English. Uh, was terrible in math, so that was the immediate trademark that I was going to be a great journalist right. <laughs> and writer because yeah. we all hate math and numbers. And so when I got to high school, I started writing for my high school newspaper. And the way that high school newspapers are produced in Detroit, or they were at the time, is that you have to come down to the professional paper to produce the high school newspaper because they put uh, them as inserts once a month, all the high school uh, newspapers uh, in the Detroit Free Press. So the moment I stepped into a newsroom in, at the Free Press, I was like, this is exactly what I want to do. It, you just felt it. Fell in, fell in love. Love at first sight. Only time that's ever happened to me, oh, <laughs> by the way. So, uh, no, I knew from that. And then, uh, you know, I was 15 years old going down there, and they happened to have a high school journalism apprenticeship program where for six weeks they assigned you two mentors. You learned the ins and outs of the newspaper business. I applied. I got it. And the rest, as they say, is history. So you got that job at the Free Press in high school. I did. I did that for six weeks. And then um, that sort of uh, trans that kind of led to a role where uh, I was answering phones in the sports department my junior and senior year. And so when I got to college, I chose Michigan State for the journalism because they had a really good journalism school. It was accredited. Uh, the college newspaper, the state news, was the largest college daily in the country, and they had won several awards for being the best college daily. It wasn't because of Greg Kelser? It was not. Uh, I'm a little after him. I, I'm not that old, but like, no, it wasn't because of Kelser well, or Magic. I, I, uh, I, I, I was 13 when they were playing. <laughs> I was so, yes, you're, you weren't even born when they were playing. Or whatever. Uh, uh, I was four, five, right. but yeah. I had no recollection of who they were. But, um, but no, so you went for those reasons? I went for, for journalism. And so it's the only thing I've ever wanted to do. And that's, I know that may seem like a bizarre story, but it's true. No, but I think it's fascinating that though your wildest dream, so your wildest dream was just to get to work and live as a journalist and make enough money to pay your college loans and kind of live a life. My dream job was Sports Illustrated. That was my dream job. I wanted to be Gary Smith. Right. Have yeah. you written for SI ever? Never. They offered me a job when I was 22 uh, to be a writer reporter, live here in New York. It was, I was one year in to my professional career. Where were you working then? What was your at first the job? At Observer in Raleigh as right. a general assignment sports reporter. And they offered me a job and uh, it, it, you know, it's the dream job, but I turned them down because the role they were offering me, I would have been mostly fact checking and know, looking over other people's articles, and if I happen to have a great idea, it may or may not have, you know, made it to the magazine, but I was writing pretty much every day where I was. I just won uh, the state award for best sports feature, so why would I leave doing that, even though I really wanted to you wanted to be Gary Smith. You wanted to be a long-form who wrote the best long-form pieces. 
it w- I looked around to see, you know, their most of their senior writers they came from other places. They didn't start out as reader as a writer reporter at twenty two. Right. No, yeah. I mean that makes. I was talking to Pablo about this the other day. It, it is a. Uh, I've I've gotten to write three pieces for them or four, and it is a crazy thing when you get to do that if you grew up reading it. Oh my it. goodness! Like even though the world's different now, and obviously ESPN has a totally different place in the in the culture. But I never thought about ESPN. Right. At, you didn't think all. about being on camera at that never. time, and you didn't think about being a columnist then either. Nope. I I became a columnist purely for financial reasons. So. So talk about what <laughs> what your day to day was then. You're you're writing for this paper in Raleigh, mm-hmm. and you loved it. It uh, was what you thought it would be. It was better than I thought it would be. I, the whole reason. So they hired me from being an intern, and the reason I went there on an internship is because they had a really good reputation for developing, nurturing young writers and hiring interns, which was very important. And so. Because uh, I had, I had hiring interns to be reporters. Yeah, correct. Right. So they had a, a, a great reputation for doing that. One of my best friends from college was already working for them. And he had interned with them for, you know, three or four months. They hired him. I was like, okay, cool. I know that they have a track record for doing this. So they hired me to be a general assignment sports reporter. And I got to cover some of everything. ACC football, basketball. You know, you haven't lived until you've had to cover multiple Duke football games right? wow, yeah. and eat gray hot dogs in the press box. Like that's that's living. right? What there. do you think? What do you think? I went to Cameron for the first time recently and I, I couldn't it's believe. First probably of all, smaller than you think. Yeah, but it's amazing. I got the whole thing yeah, when you're there. The totally. Crate, how and it, why it's so intimidating. I understood all of it. Yeah. I loved the experience of being there, it, even though I don't I, I there was something about it that was very magical. I got it, you know, um, but uh what do you think made you good at it at a young age? Like, what were your spe- what were the special skills that you brought to it? Do you think? So, I think when you're young and you're trying to figure out your voice, that just takes some time. Yep. And I can't say that I knew exactly what my voice was, but what I did know how to do was build relationships and get athletes to give me unique access. So the award that I won for best you know, sports feature in the state, the North Carolina Press Association Award was, I did a story, it's still one of my favorite stories I've ever done, on the Citadel's first female athlete, right? Uh, Mandy Garcia, still remember. And that's amazing. That, uh, you know, Oh, that's, I got to read it. Because I'm, (laughs) oh no, uh, I've, uh, ever since, you know, I read that book, um, Lords of Discipline by, Pat Conroy, and then he wrote about his own experiences at the Citadel. Great sense. You know, all that stuff was about he went to the Citadel in real life. And then when they um, allowed women in, uh, it was such a huge controversy. A huge so you were near, you went after and found a way to talk to this great yeah. athlete. Yeah. And, and, and That's so cool. Because the controversy about letting women in had, had passed and died down. But this was an entry point to get sports in on this story. And so... I followed her around for a couple of days at the Citadel, and that is a very unique place. I mean, I'm, I'm underselling it by calling that, but it's one of the it's more... It's like the last histor- historical yeah. um, independent military academy. It's not a military academy run by any of the branches, but they send people to all the branches. Correct, and it's, it's very unique. So I saw her bear crawl through mud. You know, uh, she was yelled at, all these other things. I mean, obviously nothing that crossed the line, but this was part of what they call... Uh, the knob process. She was a you know, and a you bonded with her. Yeah, yeah, and and she came from a she had military parents, and she was one of those. I think these are all often the best people to write about. One of those unlikely 
um, heroes, like somebody who didn't ask to be in that position, was in that position, but knew kind of how to handle her. She handled herself. She was like, you know, kind of mini G.I. Jane, if you and, will. And so your ability to sort of like look at a situation and, and uh, analyze it to calculate, I should be in this, I should go do this. But then your facility for being your empathy, your con- ability to connect right. is part of what made you good originally. Correct. Right? Um, and so I think it was the ability to do that, to find those kind of stories. Uh, that's as I was developing, being into, you know, into my voice and being a good writer. If you have the reporting part down, eventually the other stuff will come. So I had the reporting part down in the sense that I knew how to find some of these stories, connect with people, get them to tell me things, get the the inside access that you needed, and then I could deliver the story. Then I could work on, like, how, how do I mesh these sentence, uh, sentences together in the most concise way to deliver something powerful. Was it important to you? Were you self-critical back then? Was it important to you to become a better writer? Like, oh. Were you aware of that? Like, I want to be better it at was, this? It was everything. See, this is huge for people because everyone's always asking, how do I get connected? How do I get an agent? How do I get the next thing? That's only like this much of it, a little tiny bit of it. Yeah. The thing is like, how do I get good? Correct. How do I keep going? And so you attacked that part with rigor, you yeah, think? That was, I mean, I, I'm such a journalism nerd in general, but a writing nerd also. And so... Yeah. I was forever trying to connect, you know, how do I find my voice? You know, I acted like, you know, I was a detective looking for it, not realizing. That's so inspiring. Yeah. yeah. Not, you were consciously trying to find oh, totally. what's my original sound. Yes. How do I get yes. how do I get my sound that's in my head, the sound that's with my friends? I mean, you know, it's what Emerson, Ralph Emerson talked about, like if you you know, the secret voice that you hear that you know is out there. If you can somehow get that Expressed. That was my struggle. The battle all writers go that through. That was my struggle. And that was why I love, you know, Gary Smith and a ton of other different writers is because everything they wrote. Well, Frank DeFord's voice was so Frank different DeFord. from Gary Smith's Absolutely. voice. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And Michael Wilbon's voice was different from Stephen A's voice. And yes. Jackie McMullen's voice was different. Like, I just was, I, I was constantly in search of how did they do this? And it wasn't until after many, many years, and I figured this out, I guess, now that I've been 20 years in that it wasn't just the reporting, what it was, was the comfort. That's all it was, was the comfort. Is when you're young and you don't have a full sense of what you're doing, it's hard for you to be fully yourself and comfortable when you're writing. You just didn't know what you were doing. That was it. And I spent probably 10 years trying to figure that out. (laughs) Yeah, pressing, you're pressing. Yeah, Yeah, I was pressing. And uh, reps matter. They do, but the, because, matter. you know, and this ties into the whole thing about who you are when you're on Twitter and who you are when you're on Instagram, which is the older I get, the more I realize that the battle we all fight ourselves is to be- truly allow ourselves to be comfortable in our own skin, to actually just sit into it, to actually just be the thing, that, to keep improving, fighting to get better, totally. all that like crucial stuff, yeah. um, you know, check in with yourself, make sure you're being the best version of it. But ultimately... We had a character saying it on our show last year, which is don't fake the funk. Like, ultimately, own what you are. Correct. If you can. And you're so right about it being on the page, too. People sometimes ask, are you worried folks won't get certain references? And I'm like, no. If I love the reference and I put the reference in and I feel it, I'm not faking it, it's going to land somehow. Yeah. And even if two people get it. Satisfied. You're like, boom. So satisfied. Good. I, that's all you And that's about. how you feel as a writer, too. No, it, it is. And you know, honestly, what gave me even 
more confidence to to find that was doing more television. And I never expected that to be the case. I, I knew that writing would make me good on TV. I never expected TV to make me a better writer. And it did because on television, because you're presenting you, you have to be you. You know, well, all that's the time. why you're able to be successful that a lot of people can't. But, yeah. but finding a way to realize the key. And you, you also have to be okay and own the mistakes. The best moments I have, have had on television have been complete and utter disasters. And once you're able to own that, you have the self-confidence, like you said, with the reference thing, uh, to know that I don't care if, no, I, if, if it's just me and two of my friends that get this reference, I'm good. I'm going to write the hell out of it. I don't care about, you know, how everybody else might receive it. When you start, when you stop rather caring about what other people think, that is when you really find yourself. And so it took a while in my career and it came with experience, reps. Once I got to that point where, you know, I just didn't care, it, it made me such a better writer. When you were uh, in that first job, and then what was the second job? Uh, second job, I came back to Detroit and covered my alma mater, uh, Michigan State Football and Basketball. For the Detroit Free Press? Yep. Was Mitch Alvin at the paper then? He was. That must have been amazing. He was at the paper when I was in sure, when high you were school. Intern yeah, too. and of yeah. course he was a god in Detroit. Yeah, just to be around all those yeah. writers for that paper then must have been incredible. So then you went back and you covered Michigan State. I did. And had you started thinking then about being a columnist about your opinions? No, not at all. I, again, at that point in my career, I'm still thinking. I can wind up at Sports Illustrated, even though I passed them up before. And how are, is work the center of your life then? Or do you have any social life? Are you yeah, able I mean, to I, keep a social life you know, going? Like most journalists, I mean, we are uh, we work hard, play hard, I guess you can say. But the, most of my focus was really on my career and how to advance that. And at that time, were you a sports fan still? Yeah, I was, but in a different way. I think when you're a kid and you're growing up, uh, that you have such emotional ties to every win, every loss, and you live and die with everything. But I fell in, I learned how to fall in love with the story because I was really about the journalism and about storytelling. So I don't root for, I don't, I, I, sports fans get so insulted by this and I don't mean it in the way that I don't care about sports. I just don't care about your team. You care about your team. I don't care about your team. So when they say, Oh, you just hate the SEC. I don't care enough about the SEC to hate it. Like, I mean, I care about the SEC from a storyline standpoint, and, and so for and you, what's interesting, and that's it. But you're young enough, person. I can do the math. If you were five when Magic won, <laughs> if uh, I guess you're older than Simmons, but for you, you do you not rejecting him, but. Uh, but the idea of the new sort of post Bill Simmons idea of the sports journalist who identifies with a team. Yeah, he who, ushered that in. He Definitely. did. He, he sort of like Definitely. created that idea. And for me, I mean, I think he's the I, sports journalists don't like this, but I think he's the most important sports journalist of our, like for people under forty. I think he really matters so much. But that that idea you, doesn't take hold for you that you can keep that love and do your job. No, and and understand that when I covered Michigan State, uh, right? That's a I, perfect example. I was not, I would not have classified myself as a Michigan State fan because I actually grew up a Michigan fan. I went to Michigan State purely for the journalism, and when I was there as a student, we were so mediocre at everything that you still rooted for Michigan. Yeah, I did. I did. I, I, it was one of those things where I had to grow out of it. But what's if you don't? So like when I I covered the Masters for Sports Illustrated this year, they asked me to do it, and for me that was a dream thing to do. So I'm this huge golf fan. 
But the thing that I, and I wrote about this for SI, the, the watching the journalists almost be bitter that Tiger was the, they, all they did was talk about Tiger, but they were bitter that they had to talk <laughs> about him. But also Tiger is why everybody cared about following them and reading them. And I was walking around and these were super smart people, mostly dudes, really smart. They knew everything about golf, but I felt they almost like willfully shut themselves off to the, this amazing narrative. You know, I felt like when Gary Smith would write about Mike Tyson, he tried to love Mike Tyson and understand Mike Tyson in order to write that piece. Uh, so I, I can't, it's hard for me to understand. I've talked to Howard Bryant about this too. Uh, how you can turn it off. I think what it is, if I had to guess with those, a lot of those golf writers you encountered, my guess is that they've been dealing with Tiger Woods for like 15, 20 years, right? When you pilot in, you helicopter in to do a piece. Yes, that's it right. It seems like the greatest thing ever. Like, yes. oh my God, Tiger Woods is in the mix. Totally. It's going to be a great story. They've been dealing with this dude for a while. And there comes a certain fatigue when dealing with somebody like Tiger Woods because However you think he is on television, when he has to deal with the same media core every golf tournament, he is not the most charming guy. No, I've read the I mean I've read <laughs> like every article you know, ever written you know about he him. Isn't, I know. Right? Yeah, of course. And so they probably are more or less thinking selfishly, like, I don't want the hassle of having to deal with this this spectacle. Now I do realize too that, you know, sports sports writers, we have a tendency to uh, you know, kind of appear very cranky, even though secretly we love it, right? There's also that element as yeah. well because look, sure. they want to be read at the end of the day. And it, as you said, if this is the most, you know, still, regardless of where he finishes, still the thing that gets more people to read your stuff, well, that's just what it is. Well, yeah, I guess I've always wondered, like sports writers, uh, like the Jim Rice thing, you know, that sports writers will hold the way people acted against these athletes for such a long time. Yeah, I mean, sometimes when you're covering teams or people for too long, you know, as they say, familiarity breeds content or contempt. And so uh, it, it, I discovered early on in my career, for example, I could never cover baseball. And I, I was an intern at the Plain Dealer in Cleveland uh, the year. Even though it was your first love. Even though baseball was my first love, I knew I could not cover it. And not because of the schedule and the travel. I mean, that's part of it, but not really. I covered the Indians in 96. It was the team with Carlos Baerga, Omar Vizquel, Jim Tomei, Albert Bell, Kenny Lofton, Julio Franco. One of the most miserable teams I've ever covered. As people, you mean. As people. <laughs> They're a 90-win team. Nobody was ever happy. They hated the media. It was so... It took all the joy out of being able to cover a team that talented. Like, you guys suck. <laughs> I right. heard a thing on Twitter this whole run. Did you see sports writers going this whole run on how baseball players were the worst? Though I, from, from my vantage point of what I've encountered, they are the worst. Yeah, I, this, you know, I'll, the worst. I'll find it and send it to you. But I saw this whole run Not about why baseball players are the worst. The coverage, I never knew. Anytime I've ever met a baseball player, they've been cool to me. But I'm coming, as you said... I'm helicoptering in. Oh, in a I, totally I have plenty of place. baseball players now who I absolutely adore, who I think are great. And, and I got to say, to. Um, Levine, my partner in Billions, is close with Tex to Shara, and I've spent some time with him, and I love him. I the loveliest too. guy and, on earth. And, and, and he's and, the only baseball player I kind of really know, and he's great. No, they, they are. And, it, and that's the other sort of skewed kind of image you get is that when they come through ESPN, they're not the same guy that 
the guy who you know writes for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel has to deal with every day. No, of course, They're not the same. So, so, so you go to the the se- you get the second job, and how does it turn out that you? And at this time, are you thinking about television? Are you appearing on television yet? No, not when I was in Detroit. And now, are you starting to make even more money than the fifty k? Has it uh, has happened yet? The, would they offer me uh, the first uh, salary they offered me? I got a few raises while I was there, but it was forty seven thousand. I thought I was rich. Right. That was <laughs> I it. was you like, were I'm done. almost there. Well, almost at 50. <laughs> right. No, but this also speaks to why you're able to. So it's obvious that you keep that perspective that, you know, even though you've now become a very a wealthy, successful person on by anyone's standard, you're still kind of aware of who you were when you were a young person who thought a certain standard of life was OK. It was, in fact, all you wanted. Yeah, no. To not worry every minute. And then a lot of it is is upbringing, upbringing, as I mentioned. You know, didn't grow up with a lot. I had, um, you know, parents who were addicted to drugs. And so I had to overcome a lot to get to that point of success. And How old were you when your parents got it together? Uh, my my dad and uh, my mom, they, they never married. And so my mother raised me as a single mother. Me and my father were estranged for, you know, maybe 10 or 11, first 10 or 11 years of my life. Uh, or he was there early on, and then he developed a drug addiction, and my mother oh, I'm left. I'm so sorry about that. I, you know, I mean, I'm, again, as someone who doesn't believe in necessarily regrets, uh, I'm happy for the lessons that it taught me for when there are times of, of trouble, when you can reflect back on when things were far worse. If the worst thing, I've said this before, and it's true, if the worst thing that quote-unquote happens to me in my career is that I left the six o'clock sports center and only lasted 13 months or that the president attacked me on Twitter. Dude, that's literally nothing. The president attacking you was an amazing thing. That (laughs) was was the best thing ever. That was awesome. I mean, the fact that you were, that, that, that you were able to get under, listen, uh, because the specific thing you were arguing about was a civil rights issue in the truest sense of it. It's free speech. It's expression. And he, uh, was using the flag for clearly racist reasons. And so you spoke up and you got his attention. <laughs> and he asked the network to censure you and fire you or whatever. I mean, that's a, you must feel a sense of victory from that. Well, I don't know if victory is the right word, if, but amusement is the one that comes to mind. <laughs> Good. That's it, fine. It, it does. Uh, but real, you know, realize for most journalists, there is something to be said in our profession. It's considered a badge of honor when City Hall comes after you. Of course. Then you're like, yeah, you're doing the right thing. I did then. something, right? So, so, so you were saying, so the you grew up in in that way, and did your mother at some point get it together? At oh some yeah, point? yeah. I mean, my parent, my parents have thankfully been been clean for many, many years. But I, when I was, uh, you know, a young adult, having to see them, um, mostly my mother, since she, you know, again, she raised yeah. me as a single parent, having to see her battle through that and go through that it gave me the inspiration frankly to never make choices that put me in the position that it put them in what kind of they must be so proud of you yes they are and uh you know i'm i'm proud of them i'm i I think i'm actually it it works more so in reverse you know again my, my dad's probably been clean for over 30 years and my mom prefer 20 plus and going um probably longer than that honestly it, it i'm not as i said good at math but my mother i mean she got her bachelor's degree in her 50s she's awesome. super close to getting her master's she's 61 years old so you know that i consider to be heroic is somebody who has been through some of the things that she has been through and still been able to come on 
you know, come out on the other side of it the way she has. Yeah, that's incredible and yeah. inspiring also, your whole family. Uh, so in, in, inspiring. And clearly had some, an effect shaping you with your sense of ambition and purpose, though. Being in a situation that wasn't going to provide for you for very long, right? Yeah. I mean, you know you have no safety net, and there is no room for failure. And uh, I always had that sense. It didn't feel like any kind of burden to me. A, a lot of people you say, a lot of people use that as an excuse. Like, a lot of people will say to me, but I, I want to write, but I don't have either the time or I don't have the resources. And I'm like, well, get up a half hour earlier. Mm-hmm. I mean, what is it about? Were you just born this way where you didn't live in a place of excuses where you just were like, well, it's on me and I'm going to... Is it just how you always have been? I, or was it, it conscious? Well, it was... It's how I've always been, but it's for a reason. Because regardless of her vulnerabilities and um, in many ways her failings, like my mother was always about education. She was always about, as she used to, she used to tell me, she would say, drunk, drugged, or indifferent, go to school. Like, that would be all, she would always tell me that. That would always be her line. Like, go to school, you know. There was an expectation in my household that I got good grades. She was like, I don't care what shape I'm in. You're going to do this. And my grandmother, wow. who was the other influence in my life, uh, she was somebody who also got her bachelor. Uh, her bachelor's degree when she was in her 30s. She was a social worker for 30 plus years. I come from a very long line of very strong, we don't take any shit kind of women, right? And so there was no way I was going to be anything else. But if your mom went back to school later in life like that, you must have felt how much she regretted not continuing her education when you were young. And some part of you must have known I have to carry the torch. Yeah, well, the weird thing was uh, is for a while, I think I think my mother, she looked at my grandmother, she looked at me. We both had our bachelor degrees before she did. Right. And I think she felt as if she was somehow left behind and that she, you know, here she has she's sandwiched by these two women who have their education and she doesn't she doesn't have it. I mean, she went to, you know, community college and that kind of thing and she had an associate's, but she felt like because uh, she chose to enter the working world at, at various points that I, I think she felt like, I got to do this because I don't want them to sort of leave me behind. <laughs> so how did how did you get from there to ESPN? Like, what was the path that got you from then you were a columnist and your column was widely read? And then what happened? Oddly enough, the, the way I got to ESPN was almost through a suspension Ironically Perfect. enough, <laughs> ironically enough. So um, I was at the Orlando Sentinel, and I created this series called Writing With. And it was very basic. And all I did was get in a, a car with an athlete, interview them. They tell me some funny stories. We drive around town, show off their car, boom, in and out, you're done. The first athlete I did was Willis McGade. Right. And uh I asked, after his injury, before his injury, this would have been after his injury. So he's right. in the NFL. He's, he's in the out NFL. Of, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he's uh, out of Miami. Right. in the NFL. Yeah, you know, he's got a nice BMW. So agreed to do the series, and um, we're riding around, and I knew he had, you know, a, a couple kids out of wedlock, and so I was like, "Hey, Willis, uh, what's worse, uh, a baby mama or a wife?" <laughs> right? I just asked him to just try to be silly, and he answers it, but in the most hysterical, unintentionally funny way. And he's just like, oh, baby mamas are the worst. And they just nag you and they cost too much. And he's like going in, right? 
So this is a part of a Q&A. So and you I, have it on tape. Yeah, I have it on tape, and I, I put this in the story, and it goes viral. Uh, I The first time I made Deadspin was actually for a positive reason. It was this story. And they were like, you know, I think the headline was something like, Willis McGahee sounds off on baby mamas, you know, and it was kind of, it was funny. And, but the time, at the time, the editor of the Orlando Sentinel, uh, she was not real happy. She thought that the term baby mama was patently offensive. And I was like, no, 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 no. No, people, it's in the culture. I was like, people, people use say. this all the time. It's, it's all good. It, we we got a pass. Don't worry about it. She was livid and threatened to suspend me and my editor for allowing that in the story. Well, the story went viral, as I said, and uh, it got the attention of somebody at ESPN. Um, and this person just happened to to be mutual friends with somebody that I knew in Orlando, and they set up a dinner meeting, and the rest, as they say, is history. You mean you went to that dinner meeting mm-hmm. and you got offered what job? What was I didn't get offered the job at the dinner meeting. Uh, you know, he liked me and he said, hey, listen, um, he knew they were going to get a general columnist job open at ESPN.com because Skip Bayless was leaving to do cold pizza full time. So that left the columnist opening on page two. And he's like, I know we're going to have this job opening. Why don't you come? He offered me to come to Bristol to interview and we'll see what happens. So I went there, interviewed, got the job. And that's how I got to ESPN. So you were writing for page two, and you were writing for the magazine, right? Um, I, no, I actually, it was in my contract to write for the magazine. I actually never did it. So were you writing for page two when Bill was writing for yeah, page two? Yeah, I was. Two? And in fact, Bill was the very first person who welcomed me at ESPN. When I got hired, he sent me a fantastic email, which I still have, about coming to page two and wanting me to do well there. It was very nice and, and very gracious. And so I always appreciated that never forgot that. Yeah, I love and, him. He's and like been a incredibly lot of, good to me for a long time. We're and old friends. Like you said, a, a, a lot of people, like a lot of people, I, his position in our business was so unique. I joked with him once that I really hated him because whenever I went to sp- uh, speak to journalism students, they all wanted to be him. And I had to tell them, like, that is, li- that is lightning in a bottle. You, right, you can't be Bill. You can't Simmons. be Bill Simmons, <laughs> right? No. But they all thought they could be. Well, yeah. I mean, I do remember when. Because of what I do for a living, obviously I'm around a lot of known people all the time. And once Bill, I was at a Super Bowl when my son was, I think, guess fourteen. He and all his friends, we were at a party, Super Bowl party, and I, Bill, call, I said, call me so that I can. And I, when I put Bill Simmons on the phone with, the, like, they, it was like, there you go, nothing cool, equal. Coolest it. person, yeah, in the room. coolest person in the room. So you were there then at, at and how'd you end up on TV? Uh, that just kind of happened. Um, when you generate opinion, it makes producers want to put you on TV. And so you started doing guest spots. Yep, I did. I started doing uh, Stephen A's, quite frankly, uh, when he had that show. Then it was like Outside the Lines. Then Jim Rome is Burning. And then the ult- I mean, at least for me at the time, the ultimate was doing sports reporters. Most nervous I've ever been for any show well, I've ever done. For me, sports reporters is defining. That is a defining show in my life. No joke. From totally when I was agree. a little, you know, from when it first started, I guess I was in college probably. I never didn't watch sports reporters. I watched, I taped it every Sunday. I never missed a Sunday of sports reporters. I would watch it sometime during the week. Even on VHS, I would take, like, I watched the sports reporters. And as I remember you on it. As yeah. I, but as I told, you know, some of these youngins these days, I was like, look, before PTI and Around the Horn, before all these shows that are good shows, there was a show called Sports Reporters. Who was on your first episode it of, was, Sports uh, Bill, of uh, Sports Reporters? It was Bill Roden, uh, Bill Ryan, uh, Saunders, and Lupica. 
Bill Ryan? Bob, Bob oh, Bob Ryan. Ryan I'm you mean sorry. Bob Ryan, Bill right? Roden, Bill Roden and Bob, Bob Ryan. Ryan. Mike Lupica, Saunders. So that was that. Oh, you were on the heavyweight. <laughs> yeah. Wow, Roden. Yeah, and my first parting shot was on Mike Tyson. And it was, unfortunately, after the tragedy where he lost his, uh, I think it was his little girl. So that was my first parting shot, which I flubbed about five times. You Oh, you get to go a couple times to nail the parting well, shot? here's the thing. At that point, they weren't using prompter. So what were you doing? You had you to have had it to memorized? Memorize? Yes. How nervous were you to do that? Yeah, I was shaking. But then you did it, and then you became a semi-regular yeah, on the show. And that I, felt it. great to you. It All did. Exciting. That was, that was one of the biggest validations of my career, to be led into that very exclusive, very tight fraternity. Right. And when did you start? I won't ask numbers or anything, but when did you start earning what was like real money? Like what year <laughs> of your life? Like where were you? What uh, job? Yeah, I mean, I guess it just depends on what you consider to be well, no, real money. No, what you consider real money. Um, well, hell, I would say as soon as I got to ESPN. Right, fine. No, <laughs> right? that's great. Because I never expected to, you know, I never expected to make six figures. Right. right? So that was, ESPN was my first six-figure job. Uh, and that's always a hallmark. But obviously, looking back, I have a different opinion no, about I know. what that is but, now. But now... Uh, but how, I would say probably once I signed on to do the six o'clock sports. Right. Game. Once you understood that mm-hmm. and then you knew you were in a different sort of a world. Yeah. How did you process it? Is it heavy for you? It was Is a, it only fun? Is there any sort of like, <laughs> you know, it, sometimes these things are emotional for people. It It is mostly fun. Uh, and you do realize as you continue to make, you know, more money. I also realized, too, that the more money you make, the more free stuff you get. Which is so bizarre it's to me. Crazy. It's unbelievable. <laughs> no, no, that's a really no. Uh, it's true. You get so much free stuff now. I'm like, what? Why are you giving me this? But thank you, by the way. <laughs> yes, I mean, I will never, I will never turn down a hookup. It's for sure. But you get more free things. I was like, see, this is why. Like, <laughs> but you're doing? aware of that. It's good that you note it and yeah. you don't just take it for granted. No, and uh, a lot of it I dispatch to to friends and family and say, hey, I can't use this. You can yes. use it. But I mean, probably my my big moment, I guess, at least with with money, is when I I bought my mother a car. That's amazing. And when you're able to, I get it when you when you see. The videos of athletes buying their moms houses, cars, that kind of thing. And the look on their faces of being able to at least, you know, secure some level of financial freedom for somebody who has been in their corner, who has sacrificed for them their whole lives. I understand why they react the way they do. And that to me is a it was probably, you know, one of the most special moments of my life is being my mother had no idea it was coming. It was for her 60th birthday, which it was more like a pre-birthday gift because her birthday was still six months off. And the look on her face when, um, you know, it, I, I made sure she couldn't see. She was like blindfolded or whatever. When she saw that car, I, it was just nothing, no better reaction on earth. Oh, that's just so amazing that you got to do that. Yeah, especially where we came from, for her to, to know that, you know, I did that for her. And it was funny because um, my agent manager, who we both know, uh, Evan, he, he great guy Evan Dick. Yeah, shout out to Evan. Uh, he he was on me because I told him I was like, no, I'm gonna buy the car outright. He was like, you don't buy it, you lease it. This is how you retain and you money. You're like, no, I'm I was buying like, it. Evan, you cannot give a 60 year old black woman a car with a note. You can't do that. <laughs> She's gonna worry. She's gonna think that I'm gonna go broke paying for it. I was like, I have to give her a fully paid car, or this is not gonna work. And so you just have to live with the fact I made. 
this financial decision. <laughs> right, and you just did it. I just did it, yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. Right, two more questions. I'm going to let you go. You know, Daily News, I don't know if you heard. Mm-hmm. So, like, Frank Asola was let go today along with these other people. And when he wrote this letter signing off, he said, uh, handed his letter with, it's just sports. But you don't seem to approach it that way. And I don't see it that way either. So, I, like, why do sports matter? Because you talked about not a sports fan. You know, you're a sports fan, but you're not a fan of any team. Why is it worth telling stories about sports? I guess I should clarify. I am a fan of certain teams. The I think the only team I really would put in the category of of sort of that live die emotion would probably be Michigan State, and I don't cover them anymore. A lot of distance there, so that's. Oh, the when team. you went back to cover them, instead of being a Michigan fan, you fell in love with Michigan State. Well, when I was going, it was just for the story. Like I didn't, but once I stopped covering them, then I became like oh, a awesome. really big fan of Michigan State. It was like, oh, okay, because. It was just kind of relieving. Like, I don't have to deal with this every day. It's great. I made some really good relationships there. Sure. It, it, and I'm rooting for a lot of the people. Uh, so anyway, I say all that to say is that sports has a unique p- position in our lives. It's one of the few things we do together. We don't worship together. Yes. We don't eat together a lot of times. You know, in terms of people from different races, cultures, backgrounds, genders, ethnicities. It is because it has that unique pool with all of us. It can bring us into a moment and maybe bring us to a place of compromise that we can't get to through any other thing. And that, to me, is the beauty of what it does. Uh, It also is the lens through which we can see society in a different way. It can inspire empathy in us. Other things can't. Uh, You know, it, it it is not without fault in the sense that in some of the, the same ways we are on the wrong side in wider society right now. We have been on the wrong side of sports, but I feel like the awakening has been a lot faster sometimes in sports. Uh, you know, Jackie Robinson, he integrated baseball in 1947. That was almost 20 years before the Civil Rights Act was passed. We have seen sports lead the way in ways that we as a society have been incapable of doing. And so that's why I love sports. That has changed from... My earlier days, I lo- of course, I love, I, you know, I was an athlete. I love the competition. I love the compelling drama. I still love all of those things. But these days, I love sports for, for what it does and for how in times where we're feeling like a meteor should, write, should wipe us all out. Sports will show us something where I will think maybe we're not so bad. That's perfect. Last question. That's a great place to leave it, but I, I have the one more question, which is, so how do you define success now? I don't know. And uh, I've thought about this question actually more probably than I should. <laughs> um, no, it's an important question. Because it's an, I'm is past it, the 50,000 mark. Yeah, because it's, <laughs> because it's north, right? It's due north. Yeah. Is, you, you have to figure it out. Yeah, more, I think the more important question is probably the inverse of that. In, in how do I define failure? Because I think that's the only way I can judge but, but my success. It's not about how much money I make. Right. It's not about things I get. It's not about status I have. It's not about being, uh, I hate to use this word, it's not about being a quote-unquote celebrity. N- by most people's standards, they would consider me already a success. And I'm not saying that I don't understand why that's By the every standard. That's why I'm asking what yeah, your standard That's why yeah. I'm asking what your so own standard I, I, is. For me, it, it, I guess I don't, I never had the... Um, I made it moment. I haven't had it yet. And I was in L.A. a, a few weeks ago, and somebody said something, and I wish I remembered who it was because I could give them all the credit, 
but I think it sums out sums up how I feel about that question and what my answer would be is that you know everybody tells you and you learn how to get here nobody tells you how to be here I'm learning how to be here and I don't know what that is it gets back to the thing of being comfortable in your own skin yeah I mean I'm comfortable in my own skin but I, I just there, there are no deliverables or measurables that I have that I can say, well, you know what? When I make my first 50 million, then I'll consider myself a success. I don't have that answer. Would you run for public office ever? And <laughs> everybody keeps asking me this, and I tell them the same thing. I, I, I have skeletons, and I can't kiss ass. Like, it's just those two things make me Everybody unlimited. has skeletons. But skeletons don't matter anymore. <laughs> I just will tell them my skeletons, you know. Yeah, skeletons don't matter yeah, like, anymore. Nah, but I, you don't have any interest in being a policymaker No, God, no. Um, I don't. But you'd be good at it. I don't think I would. I do have a deep interest in telling stories. And so to me, the next iteration of my career is going to be about that. Maybe Have not. you written your memoir yet? Uh, I'm currently writing it. Good. Do you have a deal yet? Like, have you announced it? Shh. <laughs> <laughs> Write the memoir. Shh. I want to read the memoir. Yeah, yeah. You can Smoke follow Jamel on uh, Twitter at, is, your, is it just Jamel Hill. No underscore, no dots, no anything, just Jamel Hill. And uh, her Insta stories as the kids these days might say, are their Insta stories are fire. But you will see, I, what I love about your Instagram is you will show yourself having fun. Yeah, that's and important. you'll show you as just a person, not as this figure trying to change the world in whatever way she can. No, I was like, I know everybody's sort of impression of me is like I'm super serious and I think they think that I wake up with the dashiki on with my fist raised, but I'm like, I like to have fun. I like to go to parties. I like Drake. I mean, like, what else can I tell you? Yeah, but drug, drink, or whatever, show up at school. What drug, you... drug, drunk, or indifferent. Drug, drunk, or indifferent. Go to school. Go to school. That's it. Drug, drunk, or indifferent, show up at work. Jamel Hill, you're an inspiration. Uh, you really are. Keep telling stories and... Um, thank you for uh, just thanks for like not backing down appreciate it oh guys you can find me at Brian Koppelman uh, the moment bk at gmail.com if you want to email me about the show and uh, thanks for listening we'll see you next time